I just say how much I enjoy and appreciate worshipping God with you, family, brothers and sisters in Christ. In our individualistic society, it's, it's easy for us to forget that God's instructions around worship, around prayer and around mission are always given to communities of people. Um, and it's just wonderful when we come together as God's people and lift his name in worship and pray together and open his word together and most importantly do his work together. His work is never given just to individuals, it's given to a collective group of people and I really enjoy getting to do that with you lovely bunch of people. Uh, If you are joining us this morning for the first time, welcome. It's really great to have you here with us. Last Sunday, we commenced a new series where we're going to take this term to consider aspects. Of course, we can't cover the entire message of Jesus, but kind of key components or aspects of the message of Jesus as this year we really fix our eyes on the person and life of Christ. Last week we began in Mark chapter 1, looking at verses 14 to 15, if I can just summarize that in just a very quick minute. The first thing that is really important for us to understand is that the message of Jesus is good news. It's good news for those who are followers of Jesus, but it's equally good news for those who are not yet followers of Jesus. It's just good news for everyone. Uh, And the good news is also what we know as the gospel, the gospel message. And the gospel message is, I've said here, a banquet, not a snack. Sometimes in churches um, and in times gone past, we've kind of offered people a snack version of the gospel, which is primarily around having your sins forgiven and, in a sense, having a, a ticket to heaven. My salvation is secure. I know that when I die, I'll go to be with Jesus. But the gospel that Jesus brings and teaches is such a full and rich exquisite banquet experience. It begins by the announcing that Jesus announces that he is in fact the promised Messiah that Israel had long awaited for, um, that all of, uh, that Jesus in a sense fulfills all of the Old Testament and does everything that Israel couldn't do. Of course, Jesus's life and and death and resurrection and ascension, um, all of that means that we can receive forgiveness of our sins. It means that we can be restored to right relationship with the Father. So the gospel message is this incredibly rich message. And at its heart, it means that things are being remade and renewed and restored. So into brokenness comes um, light and repair and renewal. And that's wonderfully good news because we all experience brokenness in our lives. Um, The proper response to this gospel, this good news, as we spoke last week, is to repent and believe. And we explored that idea, repent, which means to turn around, to change the way you think. Um, And to believe means to trust Uh, to trust in the person of Jesus. We're, in a sense, to turn from our ways that are not God's ways, and we're to turn towards God and towards His ways, and then we're to trust those ways, and we're to trust the person of Jesus. And this isn't just a one-off transaction. It is to be an ongoing process, the way we live our lives, this ongoing um, rhythm, if you will, of repentance and belief, changing my mind, turning my mind, changing my behaviors through changing my thoughts um, to be in accordance with the will and the ways of God and to trust Jesus as we do that. Today, we um, are going to be looking from Luke's gospel at 
what has been coined by many theologians and authors, Jesus' mission statement. It's found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. And as many of you, I'm sure, would be aware, all kinds of organizations and even individuals have a mission statement that they've adopted. And the purpose of a mission statement, I guess, is to give a really um, brief but succinct summary of what that person or what that organization is on about. Like, we as a church have a mission statement, um, and the idea behind that is to try and just really um, crystallize why we exist and what's the purpose of us being here. And so we see today in this, if you will, a mission statement of Jesus really is outlining why he came and the purpose of his ministry. Um, the account that we're reading this morning is unique to Luke's gospel, but it, it, it's around the same time um, chronologically as where we were last week. So at the very beginning of Mark's gospel, we heard the, the kingdom is at hand, the time has come, repent and believe. Well, um, Luke, in a sense, this is around the same time. Um, uh, but, but Luke has a different, Luke, Luke gives us a different perspective or a different understanding of Jesus' message at that time. So let's just work through the text. Before we do, let's just pause and pray. I'd like to do that. Hmm. Our Lord Jesus, we love you. And we gather this together this morning in your name. Uh, for your name's sake, we pray that you are glorified and honored in our gathering this morning. And Lord, as we open up your word, these, uh, this ancient text that has been recorded um, for, for all people, I pray that you would help us to understand it and to apply it to our lives. Thank you that by your Spirit you dwell here among us. Thank you that the same Holy Spirit that dwells in us is the same Holy Spirit that empowered you for ministry and mission and this, it's the same Holy Spirit that has inspired the very words that we are now about to read. We acknowledge your holiness and your goodness. And we thank you for this time now. Come and have your way in and among us. For your name's sake we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Jesus was fast becoming a, a very popular figure at this early stage in his ministry. And as I mentioned, uh, similar to Mark's account, this appears just after Jesus has returned from his 40-day period of temptation in the wilderness. Prior to that, Jesus uh, was baptized, and we see that wonderful picture of the Father affirming Jesus, the Son, and the Spirit descending upon him. And at that point in time, the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. And that's where Jesus has just come from uh, in Luke's gospel with these words. Now, at the very beginning of 
Luke chapter 4, just 13 verses earlier, Luke, the author, has again stressed that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Uh, Luke, the author of this text, is really wanting to portray that anything that happens from this point forward in Jesus' life and ministry is empowered by the Spirit. He has been anointed by the Spirit. Everything that Jesus is going to do and everything that Jesus is going to say is done and said through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, We see in Luke 4, verse 15, he was teaching in their synagogues. Now, in the Galilee region where Jesus was, there were over 50 synagogues. For a synagogue to be established, there needed to be a minimum of 10 men, and then an, a synagogue could be established. Now, a synagogue, and this is actually a, a, a picture of a, you know, some ruins of, of a, a local synagogue. A synagogue, if you like, is almost like a, a local church gathering, okay? And synagogue actually means the gathering, It was the gathering place for that community of people. And in the Galilean area, there were were over 50 synagogues. And the synagogue was was a public space. It wasn't just a place for uh, religion. It was a place for community discussion. During the week, it's actually where uh, young Jewish boys would go to, essentially go go to school. At that point, they were learning the the Old Testament, the Scriptures, the Torah. Uh, But it was a place of education. It was a place of community meeting and gathering. And then on the Sabbath, it was a place of worship. But it was the central place where that community of people came together. It was governed by uh, elders, but there was no, in a sense, set rabbi, a little bit like a set pastor that kind of led or governed the synagogue. The way the synagogues operated is that they actually relied on itinerant rabbis or teachers to kind of bring the teaching or the explanation, exposition of the scriptures, which at the time was the Old Testament. And it would appear that on this occasion, Jesus was the guest speaker of the day. He was the rabbi who was speaking in the synagogue of his hometown. Now, we read that Jesus was teaching in the synagogues, plural, which means that Jesus, in a sense, was traveling around and quite possibly um, sharing the same message where he went. And, and his name and his fame, if you will, was growing. But it, this is an important moment because Jesus returns to his hometown, uh, the place where he grew up, the place where he is known as Joseph's son. And he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Remember, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he wasn't there for very long. He was born there because that's where his father Joseph had to return for the census. They had a short period of time, maybe a few years in Egypt, um, and then they returned to Nazareth. And this is where Jesus grew up. That's why Jesus is referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus returns to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Jesus was in the pattern of going to the synagogue every week. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And that right there, my friends, is a mic dropping moment. <laughs> in other words, boom. <laughs> there, what Jesus has just said is profoundly significant. And as the author Luke there says, he began by saying, so there's a lot more to what Jesus said than just those words. It's important for us to notice a few details. Um, in the context of the synagogue, um, there would be a roster and a people would read the scriptures or the visiting itinerant preacher, rabbi, teacher of the day would read from an Old Testament scroll. And it appears that the scroll that was handed to Jesus was obviously the scroll of Isaiah. Jesus has intentionally found the text to which he read. He reads from Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. He doesn't actually complete verse 2 and he actually brings in a portion of Isaiah chapter 58 verse 6. So that's kind of where Jesus is reading from. He's very intentionally reading from this particular part of the um, text from Isaiah and it is a messianic text which means that this is a prophecy about what the Messiah would do who the Messiah would be, the type of mission or ministry that the Messiah would exercise. Now, once the scroll had been read and returned to the attendant and placed in an ark or somewhere for safekeeping, the teacher or the rabbi would then sit down to teach. So Jesus has actually taken the position of teaching when he sits down. It's not like he's on a roster like we have where someone would read like Phil did this morning and then sit back down. When Jesus sits down, he is actually now in the position to teach. Um, we see in the Isianic text that there is a jubilee background. And jubilee is, is a principle that is taught in Leviticus 25. And it's this, um, there are seven years. On the seventh year, there's a Sabbath year. And so this is seven times seven. After seven times seven years, on the 50th year, it is a jubilee year. It sounds amazing. Okay, in the Jubilee year, the idea is that all debts are cancelled, all slaves are freed, all land returns to its original owner, and the, even the land itself physically is to actually have a break from all the tending and so forth. Um, it's this year of great celebration. It's a year where, if you will, everything is restored back to how it was originally meant to be. It is a year of, and, and in a sense, it is the Sabbaths, of Sabbaths. So when we think about the idea of Sabbath, it's about, it's about resting in the goodness of God and trusting in the ways of God and trusting that God is well and truly in control. And this is kind of like the ultimate Sabbath, but it's for an entire year. And this 
whole idea of Jubilee very much speaks to a, a time of salvation when God is going to restore and renew and repair everything that is as it should not be uh, to how it should be. It sounds wonderful. So that's very much in the backdrop. And this is indeed what the people of Israel had in their minds, that the Messiah would, in a sense, inaugurate for them a time of jubilee. Uh, He was going to be that one who would bring in a new reign, but it would come very differently to how they were expecting we see that the ministry or the mission of the Messiah, the promised one, is very much going to be one that is both an an announcement, a proclamation of good news, but it will equally be a demonstration of good news through the the release um, and the healing and giving sight and so forth to those. Um, The message is that God's good reign on earth has come And it is now being realized in the person of Jesus as he reads out this text. Jesus' mission is, it's good news to the poor. It's freedom for the prisoner. It's recovery of sight for the blind. It's release for the oppressed. This is good news, is it not? It's good news if you are poor. It's good news if you are a prisoner. It's good news if you are blind, and it's good news if you are oppressed. Now, I wonder how many of those people would have actually been in the synagogue at the time that Jesus spoke these words. These are the people who are the excluded ones. These are the people who sit on the fringes of society. These are the ones who are actually not welcome. (laughs) And Jesus is saying that he has come and that he has good news for these people. Now, I just want to explore the poor. (laughs) If we had time, I'd love to do a little bit of a Uh, an exploration of what it is to be a prisoner and what it is to be blind and what it is to be oppressed. But let's just take the poor. It seems like a fairly broad statement that Jesus makes. When Jesus talks about the poor and having good news for the poor, he's not just referring to those who are socially or economically poor, but the word actually says pious poor. So it's, in a sense, the poor in spirit. In a couple of weeks, we'll consider the Beatitudes. Remember where Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit? It's also considering the gender. So remember, we're living in a society where women didn't enjoy the same sort of rights as men, uh, where they were considered to be less than. Uh, A woman's testimony, for example, as we spoke about at Easter recently, uh, wasn't considered worthy or listened to. Um, People were poor based on their heritage, their vocation, depending on what they did for a living. That could make them poor, not just because of the financial status that that gave them, but what they actually did. Um, To be poor is to be afflicted. It's to be overlooked. Maybe it's to be quiet, to be humble. It's a, a very broad term, if you will. And I I wonder if you can just put yourself, join me in the exercise of considering the mindset of somebody who is poor 
in, in, in that regard, um, they've probably spent their whole lives being told that they don't have a lot of value. Their, 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 their hopes and their expectations would be very low. Uh, somebody who is poor is somebody who is discouraged, somebody who has low hopes, somebody who is used to being told you're not good enough, you don't fit, you don't belong, you don't quite add up. As you start to just tease out and play out what it is to be poor, it's a place of great exclusion. It's a place of sadness. It's a place of feeling as though I've missed out. It's a place of feeling as though I've drawn the short straw. Now, to be poor is indeed to be somebody who is in need, and it's obvious. We are all in need in one way or another, but some of us hide it much better than others. We also, don't we, it's hard, I think it's hard personally, I find it hard, it's hard for us as people living where we live in such an affluent society to really understand what it is to truly be poor. By world standards, we are very wealthy, we are very well off and we enjoy so much comfort. It is hard for us, it is hard for me to truly understand what it is in the sense that Jesus is addressing and the people at his time, what it is to truly be poor. But to be poor is to be in need. And the other thing that I think is so important for us to consider is the good news is for those who are responsive. (laughs) The good news is for those who actually understand that they have a need, (laughs) that there's something in their lives that's not quite right. And they'll openly admit that and confess that. Rather than the pious and those who are well off in a sense who say, I'm just fine. I don't need anything. These are the people to whom Jesus came. And what the message of Jesus in Luke 4, 18 and 19 is saying is that things are not as they ought to be. God's design, God's will is for human flourishing. It is for shalom to be the reign and to be the good rule for all people. And so poverty and brokenness and blindness and oppression are not part of human flourishing. Jesus is saying, I have come to restore things that are are the way they should be rather than the way they should not be. God's kingdom is a place of human flourishing. Now, as I mentioned, the very people, in a sense, to whom Jesus is speaking to are not there. (laughs) They're not present for this reading. The people who are there are actually many of the people who are the insiders, the people who are considered good, upright citizens. They are the people who gathered at the synagogue. Now, this is actually something that is really important for Luke. Luke is the only Gentile author of the New Testament. Luke was a Greek. And in fact, we're not studying all of Luke's gospel, but Luke is the gospel for the outsider. Luke is the good news to the shepherd. And who are the first people in Luke's gospel to receive the good news of Jesus? It's the shepherds. You know, and Luke, right from the very beginning of Jesus' life, 
is telling us something here. The message of Jesus is for everyone, and Jesus is going to break down all of the barriers. His message is not just for the Jews. His message is also for the Gentiles. The message of Jesus is for everyone. This is good news. The message of Jesus is firstly for people who are not part of the gathering. Wow. Now, as we'll see very soon, those who are in the gathering take great offense at what Jesus has to say, so much so that they will try and drive him over a cliff. And when we understand why, it makes more sense. Because Jesus is full of a room and he's actually saying that, that I have come and the good news is for all those ones who you've excluded. <laughs> That's not a nice message. But what a challenge to us this morning. So much of what we hear in this place, we've already received. We have been the beneficiaries of the good news. And so our role very much now becomes one of joining Jesus on his mission, empowered by the Spirit of taking that good news to those who have not yet heard or received. We see that in we didn't we're not reading the whole of the text this morning, but if we just continue on to verse 30, as we heard from Phil, they start to question Jesus' authority. Isn't this Joseph's son? Surely you're not the one to whom you are referring. And Jesus speaks about Elijah and Elisha's time, which at first read can get a little bit confusing and doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But let me just briefly explain that the, the period of time when Elijah and Elisha were ministering was the lowest spiritual point in Israel's history. It's when the people had become so disconnected from following the ways of God. And Jesus speaks about a widow in Zarephath who Elijah ministers to and Naaman the Syrian who Elisha ministers to. And what's significant about those two is that they're outsiders. So at the time of Elijah, there were plenty of widows in Israel, but Elijah the prophet didn't go and minister to those widows. He went and ministered to a Gentile widow. And in, in Elisha's time of ministry, there were plenty of Israelite lepers, but Elisha didn't minister to the Israelite lepers. He ministered to a Gentile leper. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when he heard this because Jesus is rebuking them. <laughs> He's likening them to that period of, of time in Israel's history when the people had forsaken God, that God decided to go and minister to those outside of the people of God. Now, Jesus begins in Luke 4, 18 and 19 with the proclamation of his words. But as we know, Jesus is the greatest postman all around. He delivers. He does what he says. And we see from, Luke, from, from the end of Luke 4.30 onwards, we just have this wonderful um, account 
of Jesus doing what he said he would do. He continues to teach in the synagogues. He proclaims the good news of the kingdom. He drives out evil spirits. He heals sickness and disease. He heals a man with leprosy, forgives and heals a paralyzed man. He eats with sinners and raises a widow's son. So the very thing that Jesus spoke about, we're now seeing uh, in action. John's disciples told him about all these things, calling two of them. He sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now remember, John the Baptist is in prison. Remember that from last week. And he's wondering if Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. When the men came to Jesus, I said, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messages, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now, when we read this text, I think so often we tend to spiritualize it. Jesus came to set those who are spiritually poor free. And we're all spiritually poor in a sense, aren't we, apart from God's grace? Jesus came to set the spiritually blind free, to give them sight. Jesus came to set the spiritually oppressed free. And all of that's true, but what we're reading here is that it's literal. Like people who are physically blind are given sight. Prisoners are being set free. Um, those who are poor are being told good news that this is not the way things are meant to be and that in God's economy, you're not measured by your social or your economic or your gender or whatever type of status you want. Like in God's kingdom, you're a person of great worth and value. You matter to God. This is good news. Jesus coming means good news for the very real struggles of life. The gospel must deal with the whole person. It's not just spiritual. It's also physical. It's the whole package. The good news is for the whole person. That's wonderful, isn't it? The gospel of Jesus reaches the whole person. And this is where we kind of finish up today. You see, the task of the church, men and women, the task uh, for us as the people of God is to continue the ministry of Jesus in the power of the Spirit. Just as Jesus was empowered by the Spirit to minister and to preach and to heal and so forth, Jesus then, after his ascension, sends his spirit to empower his people, now the church, to continue his work. And we do so in his name and by the power of his spirit. It is a ministry to the least of these. Jesus says in Matthew 25, whatever you've done for the least of these, you have done for me. I so appreciate um, organizations that we as a church support, like Compassion or Baptist World Aid or IJM or Global Interaction, who are doing ministry to the least of these in Jesus' name. And I love the fact that 
this is a team effort. <laughs> you know, when Jesus gives this mission to the church, we're to do it together. And so isn't it wonderful to be able to partner with various organizations, even as we've heard today, how awesome is it that we can play a role in helping the Yao people actually receive the word of God in their own language? That is being part of bringing good news to the poor. We get to be part of it. It's wonderful. Another thing that is upon us is the federal election coming up next Saturday. And I've been so encouraged by some great resources that I've shared um, in the weekly view. A few weeks ago, there was a, an article that John Dixon wrote in the Eternity uh, magazine, which is also available online, and it's called How to Vote Christianly. <laughs> um, and Andrew Palmer in today's Weekly View has hosted a wonderful series of conversations with all kinds of people in this podcast called How in God's Name Should I Vote? And what I really appreciated about both of these tools and resources as we are in this time of election is to, I suppose, have a reframe or a rethink about how do I vote? You see, Everything we hear is all about you should vote for yourself. Like who is the party? Who is the leader? Where are the policies that are going to best give you um, the best deal, the best outcome? But a Christian vote, as I've been encouraged and challenged through these resources, is always a vote for others. It's a very different way of considering it. Like how can I use my vote to bring good news to those who need it, to those who are poor, to those who need to experience freedom and release. Now, there's no perfect party, and there's no party that perfectly represents the kingdom of God or the Christian values. Um, but we, as God's people, do need to be doing due diligence to consider um, a vote that is best, not for ourselves, but indeed a vote that will bring good news to others, particularly others who are vulnerable and who are on the margins, because this is the good news of the gospel. So just in summary, God's good news extends to every person. The gospel of Jesus addresses the whole person spiritually and physically. The gospel of Jesus is exercised through words, speaking and deed action, and the task of the church is to carry on that mission. Shall we pray? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gathering, this sacred place that we can come to each week and join together with our brothers and sisters and worship you and and pray and open your word and hear from your Holy Spirit. Lord, we deeply, I deeply value and appreciate these times. But Lord, this morning we are convicted by Jesus that this wonderful, life-changing, transforming message and actions and deeds that accompany it are for those who have not yet heard it, for those who are actually outside of the gathering. Thank you that your gospel message extends to all people of all nations, of all races. This is indeed good news. And we thank you for the good work 
of many Christian organizations who are seeking to bring good news. And Lord, as we, as your people, I pray that we could continue to partner with and as your people work together for the extension of your wonderful gospel message, a message of hope and life transformation for those who are broken and in need. And of course, Lord, we are all broken and in need. And so we thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.